Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Fellow Gimme Radio DJ Diane Farris joins us this week for another episode of Classic Records. This time around, we tackle the Misfits classic, Walk Among Us. And uh, Diane and I get deep. We share some of our personal experiences with the record and some personal experiences with the band. Unfortunately, I never was able to catch the Misfits when they were around. I was exiled out in the suburbs. I missed out. I did not check them out in any of the reunions. Uh, Maybe I'll see them on this next round of reunion shows. Maybe not. Anyway, we'll see. If you guys uh, enjoy the show, please share on your social media. Tell your friends. Leave a review on iTunes. On Facebook, I'm Michael Hill. You can find me on Instagram at Michael underscore DC underscore Hill. And you can also check out my other podcast, Everything Went Black. It started out as music, and now it's gone into some other realms. And if you're interested, check it out. Well, what's, um, what's sort of timely and meaningful about this whole thing is you being from New Jersey. Yes. We're going to be talking about Jersey's own misfits. We are. This and, is exciting. And uh, you know, the, one, of the, one of the prides of New Jersey, the misfits. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, the funny thing about the misfits, so, so many different types of people, and that's expanded too, actually, in the more recent years, are fans in the Misfits. I mean, you got punks, you got people into heavy metal, you know, you got people into thrash, whatever. And now it's like more recently there's with, and I don't really acknowledge the the newer Misfits stuff as much, but mm-hmm. there's like this whole other wave of like younger kids, I think, that like the band. Yes. Yeah. There is. I think that that's a lot of, you know, a lot to do with their marketing. Like, there's always a new Misfits t-shirt out. I yeah. swear. It's like every month there's, like, a new design. If you, like, go on their website, it's like there's something new. They do a really good job of marketing themselves and, you know, creating new designs or repeating shirts that are really popular and that kind of thing. And the Crimson Ghost is, I mean, who doesn't like that image? It's iconic. Yeah, completely. Yeah. You know, it's funny. A few years ago, I read this book, and I'm not going to name the title, because I'm going to say something that's a little disparaging about the book. Oh, okay. Uh, so I got real excited because like, I love reading uh, you know, books about ba- some of my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a big music book reader. Yeah, me too. Know? Yep. And this one was about the Misfits. Hmm. Okay. And I was like, wow, this is cool. I have like that, uh, that photo book that Yuri Vaughn did that, that was great. You know? Yes. And um, now this sounds like it would be a really cool like, compliment you know, to read that. So I started reading the preface to the book. And the, the writer got into the Misfits post Glenn Danzig, okay? Hmm. Did not know that Glenn Danzig was ever in the Misfits, okay? How could you write a book? How could well, you be qualified to write a book? That- he, he talks about this in the preface to the book, and he's like, yeah. So, you know, I found out. It sounds like the, I heard their, this other record, Walk Among Us. <gasps> Oh, no. And um, I said, damn, it sounds like that heavy metal guy from the band Danzig singing in it. And I was like, 
I, I finished, I did read the book. Okay, because I had to. I'm one of these guys. Once I start reading something, I finish it. I don't. Right. I don't abandon things. You know what I mean? Yes. So I, I made my way through this book, and he had a couple of interviews with some of the members. Like he had Jerry in there. Mm-hmm. No Glenn. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, man, that's a big missing. If you're you can't write the book without interviewing Glenn Danzig. You can't, you don't have it. You can't write the book without the knowledge of what Glenn Danzig contributed to the band, regardless of even if you're going to write it covering the post-Glenn Danzig stuff. Yeah. You cannot. You have no business doing that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't want to throw this guy under the bus anymore, but, uh, you know, I was going to... I'll throw him under the bus. I I didn't even read the book, but that's (laughs) like, why would you even attempt to write that book if you don't know about what you're writing? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that it was able to get published, really. But, you know, there you go. It's out there. Yeah. But I don't, I'm not going to mention the title or the writer because no. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want to mislead people down the path of thinking this is like a valid document of a band that is very, you know, very important to me and you. Yeah. So that segues into tonight's <laughs> classic <laughs> episode Misfits Walk Among Us. Yes. And um, that's going to, out of all the, the Misfits records, this one, we have, uh, you know, we had our, uh, our our staff meeting and we decided that Walk Among Us would be the first entry from the Misfits into the classic, the Gimme Radio, Metal Matters, classic records. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is... Um, What's it, 83? Okay. This record came out March 1st, 1982. Okay. First to be first to be released, but actually the third to be recorded. Static Age and 12 Hits from Hell were actually recorded first. Hmm. And you know that? I think I did know that. Did you also know that this record was reissued by Earache in November of 2018? I do know that. Yeah, yeah with 666 copies. And there was like six variant colors. Yes. Do you have any of those? No, I have the original pressing. All right. I mean, you know, but, but some you people, know, there yes. are those out there that would have all six of those probably. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, good for Earache for understanding what an important record this is and doing that. Now, wait, when was it put out? 2000? It was put out in uh, 2018. 18. And so it was like just last year that came so out. So it's 618. So... Six times three is 18, 666. I wonder if it was released on like June 6th or something like that. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, Earache always figures out things. Digby is pretty smart in terms of making a little bit of, making an investment and and reissuing something. And he has that background too. I mean, he was around back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I mean, they're definitely not New Jacks, you know. I just no. didn't even I didn't even know it came out. You know, I mean, actually, yeah. it's only like a year. Yeah, you know? so I don't know if I've seen them. I wouldn't say that I've seen them necessarily. What do you know? What cover is it? The purple or the pink cover? I believe it's the pink cover. Okay. And then there's like six different colors. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> of, you know, of the vinyl. That yeah. Is. Yeah. That's good. It is. It's a classic record. Yeah. I mean, do it. You know. So the production of this record, similar to a lot of records from that era, was done in pieces and in a variety of different places. And it's sort of like a patchwork. You know, back in those days, 
you know, there wasn't the big budgets to go around. So right. you kind of made it happen. You know what I mean? So the original production was done in a variety of different studios. Early 1981 at the Mixolydian Studios in Boontown, New Jersey. It's Booton. Booton. Oh, oh. I used to work in Booton. Booton. B-O-O-N-T-O-N. There's no W in there in case that's how you're reading it. But yeah. And New Soundland in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Okay. Sorry. Well, well, <laughs> well Fairlawn, New Jersey, if anyone remembers, is where Travis Bickle claims to have been from. Oh, really? When he's questioned by the... Uh, the CIA guys, the Secret Service guys, and taxi driver. You know, I can vaguely remember that. Yeah, That's you remember funny. like like when um you know he's scoping out that the the guy he's going to try to murder, you yeah, know, the um to try to assassinate that one political you know politician. Yeah, and uh, this this Secret Service guys get hip to him as being a possible threat. You know what I mean? So they start questioning him, <laughs> and he's like, oh. How do you become a Secret Service guy? You know what kind of guns you guys carry and all this stuff. And then they, he's, oh, well, let me take down your, um, your, you know, your, your address because they're going to put them on put on file. Of course. So of course, he makes up a fake address, and it was in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Interesting. Yeah. I. Hmm. <laughs> the live recording of "Mommy, Can I Go Out and Kill Tonight" was recorded at the Ritz on December seventeenth, nineteen eighty-one. Mm-hmm. And that was during the same show that they recorded "Evil Live" too. Yeah. Yeah. So they got a little bang out of their buck by record, bringing up the old recording portable recording rig. Yes. And they got two records worth of material mm-hmm. you know, out of that one, even though it's one song. And just the fade out during that song when it goes into London Dungeon, always it always gets me. It's always like, ugh. Yeah. That's a great... <laughs> London Dungeon is, is one, of my, one of my favorite songs. It's a great it's, mood song, yeah. yeah. It really is. And um, the, the Ritz... For anyone out there who's not ancient, like uh, Diane and I, <laughs> used to be probably one of the like premier like mid-sized clubs in New York City. Oh yeah, in the late seventies, eighties. I saw everybody there. Yeah, and then I, it became Webster Hall. I mean, it's still a great room. Right, but you know the Ritz. I for me because you know I, I well actually some you know you you had a little bit of a trek to get into the city to see shows too, right? Yeah, but I went every yeah. week. Because I, I didn't grow Three up Three times a week sometimes. Yeah, I grew yeah. up like north. Yeah. You know, just above Westchester County, which is probably meaningless to you guys who aren't don't live in the tri-state area. Right, but, right. But uh, yeah, I used to take uh, the Metro North into the city and uh, I would go to, I've seen several, several shows at the Ritz, the Cramps. Uh, I saw X there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Motorhead. Yeah, with Wendy O. Williams and the yeah, Cro-Mags. Uh, uh, hold on a second. The Motorhead show that I saw there was Vulcan Death Grip. Oh. Motorhead. And I want to say that went that the Plasmatics were on that show, too. Okay. Yeah, because so, he played a lot with her. Yeah. With, with them, yeah. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's it was like the spot. And it was like one of those places, once again, I would, you know, get the local. Like, I would, we would get the New York Times and the post and all that. And I remember back in those old days, there would be the, the listings of all the things that were going on in the city. You know, they'd have like all the porno movies, you know, that were playing on 42nd street. And they have like listings for CBGBs and they have listings for the Ritz. And I just remember being a kid, like looking at these bands and being like, Oh, this is like, you know, this is where I have to end up somehow. Somehow right. I got to find my way into these places. So, mm-hmm. so that's why I thought it was really cool that the, the Ritz, this is where they recorded this. Yeah. It's an iconic place. 
in in New York's music history. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Danzig ended up remixing uh, the material and added more guitars. Yes. at this place called Quad Tech in L.A. And he also tracked new vocals for Vampire at this session too. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, this is like a project that took seemed to span over the course of the year to yeah. make this record. Yep. You know, well yeah. worth it. Oh yeah, definitely. Program length was twenty four minutes thirty eight seconds. Okay, we got perfect. That's the perfect length. <laughs> you know, and it's it's funny. Um, I interviewed Randy, one of my other co hosts for these classic records. Mm-hmm. And because uh, Cable has a new record coming out. Oh, okay. And uh, that record is uh, like about 30 minutes long. Yeah. And we talked about how back in the back in the day, you know, really you were limited by the, the physical constraints of, the, of an LP. At right. 33 the, and a third. the grooves. Yeah. Well, Elvis Costello put out that groove cram record that uh-huh. really sounded like shit. Like it didn't work. You can't. There's just nowhere for the needle to go. It doesn't get the 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 dynamics. Yeah, there's a law of diminishing returns, as they might say. <laughs> yes, yes. That the material constraints limit the amount of songs, a lot, lot of program length you can have on a, on a long playing record. Mm-hmm. So th- there's something um, there's a, there's like this sort of forgotten sort of beauty in that i think is that okay this is all the time you get yeah you know make it count get in get out get in do your thing make an impact and that's all you get as opposed to these days where you know certain (laughs) bands put out double lps as their release um you know digital you can have like hundreds of minutes available right yeah and it, it almost is um there's like there's a lack of uh, of uh, you know economy I think mm. in the way people write albums these days. So I mean some of my favorite records are short. You know Slayer, Rain and Blood. It's like what 25 minutes or something like that. Yeah, 28 yeah. minutes maybe. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Just yeah, no. I, it, it's an interesting point that you bring up, and I haven't really been present to it. But now it's like there's so many bands, so many of these like sort of depressive metal bands where it's like. One song is longer than one side of a record could physically be. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and, and that's kind of a drag. It's like, I, I like working within constraints. Sometimes I feel like it makes you hone your work better. And I'm actually talking more about like artistic stuff or doing editing, like doing a radio show and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I've got to, I've got to choose this, or I've got to segue this, or I've got to really cut this interview or something. But, but. I think certain restrictions are good. They make you have to work a certain way. Because if you have everything your way all the time, I mean, you know, artists are artists. I mean, it'll just be like, yeah, here's my new song. It's like four and a half days long. Yeah, it becomes you know? self-indulgent. Yeah, you know? totally. And and that that's like one of the things that I, I think you grab this record and it's it's short, but it doesn't feel short because all the songs have such like a, a high impact. Oh, yeah. You know, and um, like, I don't think I listen to Walk Among Us. And I don't I don't feel like when it's done, I don't feel like, oh, you know, I need more. It's like the perfect oh, sort of. Yeah, like, it's impact. a perfect. I would almost say it's a perfect record. So the track listing is like this. Side A, 20 Eyes. I Turned Into a Martian. All Hell Breaks Loose. Vampira. Nike A Go-Go. I'm just like back here, like going like, yay. Hate silently. Breeders. 
Mommy, can I go out and kill tonight? Live. Live. <laughs> Side B. Night of the Living Dead. Skulls. Violent World. Devil's Whorehouse. Astro Zombies. And Brain Eaters. Now, there was a, this record came out on Slash and Ruby. Yes. Okay. Yes. There was a plan for Plan 9, which is Danzig's label, to mm-hmm. release this record, but that never saw the light of day, apparently. I think I think mine is a Ruby Plan 9. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I don't, I'm not positive, but I think, I think it is. And you have like, uh, cause like there's, there's like a, um, an alternative track listing for that too. But apparently I, uh, the information I have, and I, once again, there, I've been known to make mistakes from time to time. Apparently I was, I was, my, in, my information told me that it never came out, but. I don't know. Okay. Is this the track listing? I'll read it off. Side A, 20 Eyes. I turned into a Martian, Astro Zombies, Vampira, All Hell's All Hell Breaks Loose, Nike Go Go, Devil's Whorehouse, Side B, Night of the Living Dead, Skulls, Violent World, Horror Hotel, No, Gould's Night Out, An American Nightmare. No, I don't have okay. that one. That's the one that apparently was supposed to be the official Plan Nine version that never, oh, never okay. came out. Okay, yeah. so I'm not positive what I have. I know it's Ruby, but I thought it was Plan Nine also, and who knows? It's I mean, the, he might have snuck his is... logo on there, you know? Right. You know, but this one apparently it was supposed to be an exclusively Plan Nine release, hmm. but it never happened. Hmm. The personnel on the record is uh, Glenn Danzig on vocals and yeah. guitar. On a variety of songs, he plays guitar on several tracks. You know, Vampira, Devil's Whorehouse, Astro Zombies. He overdid a bunch of guitars on those tracks. Um, Jerry only on bass, backing vocals. Doyle on. And I'm going to say this in air quotes. Lead guitar. <laughs> yes. Backing vocals. Arthur Googie on drums. Nice. The engineering and production was done by Mike Taylor. He was the engineer on all tracks except for Hate Breeders, and Pat Burnett was the engineer on Hate Breeders. Hmm. So, yeah, that's um, you know, that's that's the all the little details about this record, you know, and um, so now your relationship with the Misfits, because I, you know, you know that it's a band that you actually experienced. Me too, in a way. I mean, I came, I didn't quite. I wasn't into them when they were around. Mm-hmm. I, I caught them at the very, very tail end. You know what I mean? And I never got a chance to see them in their full glory, okay. so to speak. So as a young lady, was this something that grabbed you right away? Or you know, what, what's your relationship with the band, your entry point? So there, so I bought the, I bought the Seven Inches and the albums when they came out. Right. Like, um, and they were part of... Sort of like the New York version of punk, but and and everybody they played on Halloween at Irving Plaza, like and that was kind of like when you went to go see them. And then I actually DJed a Misfit show in Jersey City, like I think it was called the Charis Club. The owner, his name was Alex, and he had something to do with Club Fifty Seven at Irving Plaza. It was like okay. a it was like a Polish hall. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but I DJed that show, and I don't remember who else was on the bill. And I actually gave him tapes to play at Irving Plaza. Um, 
But so I would go see them and I was really like, I liked them and I wasn't like, this is the best band in the world at all because there was also New York hardcore that was happening. And, and I was really into a lot of other hardcore around the country. So the Misfits to me were like kind of more of a pop band. And, but I still really like what they did. I loved all the horror references. I loved that they were from New Jersey. Um, and, and it's funny because now like they're so popular and it's a practically a posthumous thing, Yeah. but they weren't really liked like they really, you know, I mean the, the Halloween shows were sort of different, I think because it was Halloween, right? Sort of but in general, like, that? you know, and I've always had really varied tastes in music. So, you know, I can like this and, you know, I loved like my, my pop punk and my rock and my metal and all types of stuff mixed up. But, and I used to, to sometimes carry a boom box when I would go to shows at like CBs and a seven and stuff like that. And people would say like, well, that's not hardcore. And I'm like, you're right. And, so (laughs) like but that was sort of there was a little bit of that mentality in regards to the misfits you know and then later even the undead too because bobby seal used to hang out all the time right you know at cbs and a7 and stuff um and bobby seal was the original guitar player Mm -hmm. of the misfits many years ago um and so they weren't really you know loved in the region and new jersey just didn't have enough punks to like support and but they kept on going yeah. and that was the thing and that's that's what i was like for me like the misfits seven inches it, it was like like we were talking before about seven inches i'm not sure if the mic was on or off no, but, was, but we, that that's but, off mic we talked about yes that. so we but were we talking about refer the, to it though. <laughs> yeah so so um I have a huge seven inch collection. And to me, they were like greeting cards. It's just like, oh, like, or like even postcards, like, oh, look, I went here and I came back with the seven inch. Like, it's almost like a wish you were here kind of thing. And I loved their series of seven inches. And, you know, there was interesting artwork. It was all horror based. And like this, like I liken it to, this series of seven inches that the Buzzcocks had, like those all had really, really similar looks. And it was just sort of like, it became like this collector thing for the music and for the art. So I was aware of and very appreciative of them, but they didn't necessarily play all the time either. Um, And, but when this record came out, when this album came out and when you could hear cohesiveness from song to song to song I do remember really getting this like vision like just kind of like whoa like like that was at like at that time I was just like Glenn Danzig is a genius like like for real and 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 we'll get into it when we start talking about some of the tracks and stuff but but um I think that there's one song on that record that's kind of like a fuck you to the New York hardcore scene. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, not lyrically, but Mm -hmm. I I just, I just think so because I was there and I know that they were not popular and, but Misfits played like they played with like the Necros and the Meat Men on like the process of elimination tour and all that. So they were included, but it was almost like, like that was at the, that show was at a seven and at the mud club. Mm -hmm. And, and it was the three of them. And I don't know if like, 
technically the Misfits were like the local opener. I don't know if they were on the whole tour and the Misfits were not on the process of elimination EP. That's what on touch and go. But, um, so I'm guessing they were the local opener. And I remember like the hardcore bands were like, what the fuck? Like the New York bands, because the Misfits were, I can't explain it, but they were not a New York hardcore band. Like they just weren't. Well, yeah. I mean, they clearly, I mean, if if you just, just, they don't look like a hardcore band. No. And they definitely don't no. sound like a hardcore band. So, you know. yeah, I mean, they, but, you know, they were part of like the punk, the greater, the overarching punk scene. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's it. They were part of the scene for sure. And they're, I mean, and they were fantastic. I mean, it was just, it really took a while for, for the region, I think, to warm up to them. And I have to just say, like, in my personal dealings over the years like jerry is one of the nicest guys like ever he's always been really generous like in terms of like you know giveaways for radio and that kind of thing like like the misfits jerry and glenn i know that they may not have much of a personal relationship now but they definitely grew up knowing or understanding in some way how to do business as a band and how to like put out something and then leave them wanting more. Like yeah. the whole thing with like their seven inches and all that club. Yeah. You know? The fiend club. Like, yeah, I'm sure there were other bands that did it, but it just really seemed masterful and mature at the time to me. And I mean, they're older than I am, but still like, it just like, it was like, of course I'll join. Like, of course, like, oh, you know, it's like everybody in the pool, you know. Well, I, I always thought it was like a cooler version of the Kiss Army in some ways. Yes. You know what I mean? Because yes. like, you know, my my impressions of the Misfits, like, because I, I got into them, I'm going to be honest, I got into them because I like, because for Metallica, really, you know what I mean? It's oh, like, okay. It's like, I, I didn't know about the band mm-hmm. until I started, because I was definitely more into metal, like when I was like a young kid, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And then... I started hearing punk and hardcore and punk, the punk stuff I liked. I, I got really dug, you know, the germs and, and, uh, you know, X uh-huh. and bands like that. It took me a while to come around to hardcore because okay. of the lack of a playing ability. It's some of the, a lot of the, most of the bands had mm-hmm. the two bands that got me, that really turned me on like around on that were the bad brains, of course, circle jerks, black flag. Yeah. And then the Chromags. Yeah. When I heard Age of Quarrel, I was like, okay, this is like why people would listen to hardcore. Right. You know? So, anyway, that's a, that's a little digression. But when I started seeing James Hetfield and those guys wearing Misfits t-shirts, I was like, what's this band of Misfits, man? This is like, they, they look exactly like something I would be into. Because I loved horror movies and, mm-hmm. you know, Marvel comics. Like, I... I always equated the Misfits with uh, Tomb of Dracula, like the black and white Marvel com- like magazine-sized comic-, comic book that came out back in the 80s. Oh. And it was like the mature like Dracula, black and white, you know, very gothic looking. You oh, know, cool. Cool stories. And, and um, their whole thing, like the skull, the, it all was very comic book to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's what attracted me to the, the imagery that I saw on the T-shirts. So the first record I actually bought was Legacy of Brutality. Oh, cool. Because it just sounded like a badass. That was a great name. I'm yes. Like, Fuck yeah. Br- brutal, you know, brutality. And like, and um, it was not what I expected because I bought it without ever actually hearing them. Right. 
And I was like, okay, I thought it was going to be like this kind of thrash like thing, you know? Yeah, no, it's poppy. But or poppy, but what really hooks. grabbed me though was I was like a huge fan of like X and the Gun Club and all these other bands mm-hmm. and like the the sort of um, rockabilly 50s doo-wop vibe, Elvis. Absolutely. That is what grabbed me. Yep. And also being from the tri-state area, my family, like my mom and dad are from the Bronx and like they grew up listening to like girl groups. Right. You know, and like doo-wop music. Right. And so that was always in the house when I was a kid. So I grew to love that music as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Elvis, Roy Orbison. Yeah. And that was like, when I heard Glenn's vocals and his lyrics, you know, that with the Ramones-like approach to the to the music, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, this is a, this is better than the Ramones. Because yeah. once again, you know, the Ramones, that was another band that got me into punk. But like, to me, I was like, man, the Misfits are way better than the Ramones when I first heard the, their, this material. And I was like, so to me, it never they never were like a hardcore band. They were more in this kind of like whimsical, you know, dark horror werewolf music or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's that was how I got into the band. And then, mm-hmm. you know, then I heard Walk Among Us and that has like almost all my favorite songs on it. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And that was like in the eighties, like the late mid to late eighties is like when I started. So I it was a little it was after the fact. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't when they were around. You know and, what I mean? And I just have one thing to say, because I I was at the Birch Hill in Old Bridge, New Jersey to see Anthrax, and the members of Metallica were there wearing misfit shirts, watching Anthrax. And that's and I and I knew that all that stuff was gonna shift. And I like, you know, and I and to and I think so it was like probably a year after this record came out that the first Metallica came out. Yeah. So yeah. Kill 'em All and the first suicidal record may have come out the same week cuz I bought them at the same time. And there was just that like it was just it was on. Yeah. Like totally. like those years were just really sick when it just comes to like when you look at like what came out and what came out next and what came out the next week and all that kind of stuff. It, it like there was there was so much electricity in the air and like sharing of ideas and osmosis and stuff. It was the world was just so great and so like full for for music. Yeah, you know, and, and music that was like almost completely secret from like normal people too. Yes. You know and, and would offend movie. other people. Yeah, that, would, I mean, especially at that time, you know, I was a kid. I was totally into it. Like, oh, look, they they're staring at me, and oh, what, what shirt am I wearing, or you know, whatever. But that's just what you did, you know. You know, and for me, like the um, growing, you know, growing up like out in the hinterlands, like I did, uh, close to the Connecticut border. And I've talked about this shop a couple of times, so I don't want to bore everyone out there. But I'm going to talk about trash American style in Danbury, Connecticut, Malcolm. Yes. yes. That guy, everything that I got into from this period, it was really goes back to, I probably bought it from him, you know, really. All mm-hmm. these records that we're talking about, Gun Club Records, X, all this stuff. Yeah. Pretty much got from Malcolm, <laughs> you know, and and even the Misfits, you know what I mean? It was stuff that that's like where the secret music was able to be found, you know, because you couldn't get it. Like, you know, the world back then was like this kind of generic sort of, middle ground middle road it was like being in an airport or something like that and then yeah. 
you, you would have to go to these like remote places that barely existed, uh, you know, and find this kind of stuff, this kind of culture, you know what I mean? And uh, it, where was the record store that you went to? It was all like Bleaker Bob's, that kind of stuff? I or? went to, well, I went to a lot of shows in the city. So I would go to Bleaker Bob's um, after gigs because they were open really, really late. And I would always buy a seven inch. Um, I And then I did a lot of shopping at like, you know, Sounds and Venus. And there are probably some other ones. I'm sh- I, 99. I went to 99 Records a lot too. Um, and then there was in... I think it was Irvington or Union Rebel Rouser that um, Sal from Electric Frankenstein used to own. And there were a couple of places in Jersey. And I did a lot of, of mail order yeah, records mail order too. Was big, yeah. I used to get stuff from Cross Country, who I think were from DC, and Moby, who was from the West Coast. And, and I remember being in Bleaker Bob's and seeing the first Minor Threat 7 inch, seeing the red one. And I knew I had it on order, so I didn't buy it. And when I got mine in the mail, it was the yellow oh, one. No. And I was like, oh. And I didn't know. Like, I didn't even know. I just knew it was out. Yeah. I didn't know about the covers. I didn't know anything. I was like, oh, mine is a different cover. And then, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, I saw that. But the funny thing is about, like, the underground, it's like so many of the British bands were on major labels. Like, there was a lot of British stuff you could buy in, like, your local yeah. Sam Goody or whatever. for one. Yeah. You know. You know, and all like Susie and the Banshees, nine 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 was on Polydor. You know, but um, but we were creating our own underground here, like the 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 world of retail and distribution and things like that was not that kind to the punk scene, which I think was perfect. It wouldn't have been a punk scene. It wouldn't have been an underground scene if it weren't for you know the kids actually keeping it underground. Like, how many bands did you write to? Like, I, wrote I didn't really to, write to too many bands. I wrote to bands all the time. Yeah. Like, all the time. There were ads in the back of Maxim Rock and Roll. I'd, like, send somebody $2 and get, like, a record in the mail. I, I had pen know. pals on from Maximum Rock and Roll. Like, yeah. I wrote to other people that were, you know. But I, I didn't actually write to bands, honestly. Yeah. You know, I always felt, like, a little too, like, you know. You know, they don't want to hear from me, man. You know, like, oh, I would always send them money for their record. You know, yeah. I'd be like, here, send me your record. I ordered know? a lot from SST, like the SST mm, catalog. Yes, yeah. Because when I when I got into Black Flag at that age, is that that was like the hooks. Like that is like once yeah. I discovered Black Flag, I had to have everything by them, and I also had to have everything by Saccharine Trust, and I had to mm-hmm. have everything by Husker Du, and I yeah. had to get as much of the SST catalog in my possession as possible. Yes. That was like the Minutemen. The label, yeah. You know, the St. Vitus records they put mm-hmm. out. Um, you know. Yeah, uh, Bad Brains were in SST. Bad, Bad Brains, yep. Mm-hmm. I Against I. Yeah. Yep. Um, Soundgarden. Yes. Yeah, Ultra Mega yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, you know, that that was like the mail order stuff, you know, for me. But um, but anyway, as far as the tracks on on this record, do you have any, do you have any standouts? Because you meant you you teased something about one song being. I really do. Yeah, so let's lay lay it on us. What's, so what's my the deal? my favorite track on this record is sort of not a typical track on the record. It's the third track, "All Hell Breaks Loose." Okay. So that that to me is a hardcore song. Yeah. And that's. And I think it's completely different from everything else on the record. And I have to tell you, when I put that record on at home, I remember, like, 
I'm like, oh, cool. Like 20 eyes. I turned into a Martian. I'm like, this is awesome. Of course I turned into a Martian too. And when this song started, I was just like, cause it's just, it has that, like that, that downstroke yep. bass that just dunk, 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 yeah. dunk. And there's a part in there where I swear you can hear the texture of the bass string. Like you can really hear that, like yeah, that, that like that coiled. You absolutely can. And halfway through the song, when it clicks up and it gets faster and the guitar goes into that higher register, I remember just turning my head and staring at the turntable. Just being like, what the fuck? Like, that song for me, for years, was like my wake up and get ready to kick ass song. Like, because it's just so like, like, I can't, like, even now, when I imagine the song, I like clench my fists and start like punching things. And if I hear it, and I mean, the only time I hear it is when I'm playing it. It's not like I hear it in the supermarket or anything. But if I'm like talking to somebody on the phone or I've got this record on in the background or something like that, I have to, I'll be like, hang on a minute. And I'll just be like, whoa, like, you know, (laughs) like I can't not react to that song. There's just something really visceral there. And it's just so like, and like, listen, the lyrics in there, he says, I send my murdergram. Like, like Glenn Danzig is making up words to create an environment. And that's where I say genius. That's where that comes in. Because it's like, are you kidding me? He's creating a vocabulary for who the misfits are. Mm -hmm. And everybody bought into that. And most of the lyrics on the entire record use the word I. They use the first person. So when you're singing along, you're saying I, like you belong, like you're there, right there with them. And that's where that record, like like, like their singles are the same way, but they're singles. Right. And this is like, Oh, 12 songs. And I have to kind of leave off Brain Eaters because I really don't like Brain Eaters. But anyway, but like it's just like this, the whole album, it creates some kind of like, I don't want to say possession, but it's just like, oh, like you're, you're going through something when you're listening to this record. And I, and I don't know if it's the same for somebody who listens now. You know, especially if they're like older, you know, because this was my growing up period. And this, and I was still really angry, you know, like as a person. And this was just like, you know, like, yeah, like I want to kill somebody. I'm a Martian. Like, I, you know, like, yeah, like, 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 like signed in their parents' blood. Like there's just so many just delicious lyrics in this record it's unbelievable like it really is there's a whole bunch there's there's like three or four made up words and i remember just starting to really read the lyrics and there's a lot of lyrics that are more like guy lyrics and i don't necessarily sing along but when i was reading like there's some there's another oh murderlation right that's in another hate breed, yeah, yeah right like i'm like this is not a word either like this is but it was like the enthusiasm, like the momentum was just causing them to like make up words and just like create something else for us. Like so amazing. Well, that's the thing I think is taken a lot of people take for granted at this stage of the game is, um, you know, Glenn Danzig, not only did he expand the English language with some of these words like murdergram, murderlation. <laughs> I'm going to send you a murdergram, by the way. <laughs> but, 
and also he has the voice of an angel number one oh my god beautiful voice he does absolutely to this day to this day totally self self-taught yeah yeah from what i've read Uh um but he put together like a very such a unique look and atmosphere Uh you know like everything was so carefully designed like the album this album cover yes you know there's all the it's like it's such a specific thing. It, there was a lot of thought put into the whole thing, a lot of intention. And that's yeah. like why I think like before I even really knew what they sounded like, all of those elements are the things that actually drew me in. Like, no, well, besides, all right, number one, like I saw Metallica wearing the t-shirts. Right. But I also saw Metallica wear other bands t-shirts that I didn't get so enthusiastic about either. <laughs> but there was something about the logo the fucking skull. Yeah. And then when I started di- dialing into like what their trip was, was all about, I was like, man, this is, you know, there's like a whole universe of stuff here. And that's another reason why I connected with the comic books too. It's like you read the, you read Marvel comics. There's like this, this world that they created that these characters operate in. Yeah. And in some ways I felt like the misfits were like characters in their own universe. Really, yeah. In some uh-huh. ways, you yeah. Know? And you know the look of the records, the sound, the lyrics, the the new words of the vocabulary, you know all that sort of stuff. The way they looked, like their whole, they looked like superheroes, kind of. You know what I mean to me? Or these like evil superheroes? Yes, larger you know, than life. Larger than life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that you know harkens to what I said earlier about them being like a way cooler Kiss. Yeah. And I like Kiss, man. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. No, I do too. Mm-hmm. But they were like a. Um, like a more street level version of Kiss in some ways. Well, that's where you're right. It's street level yeah. because you see them. I so one time, I was driving and I was going to a a horror convention, and I look in my rear view mirror and there's like a black primer Ford Bronco maybe one of those like an older um, car behind me with giant spikes like six inch spikes going up the hood. And then I realized Jerry only is driving. Hell yeah. And I was just like, oh my God, that's like the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, I mean, the street level, like they were there, you know, Jerry was making an appearance and stuff. And um, they, um, you know, oh, and I was going to say about, about all hell breaks loose. So for me, I think that that's sort of, and I don't know, I don't know anything really in terms of why, how, and how this song came out. Cause because I think it's it's faster, it sort of stands out in the record. Yeah. But I do think that it's like kind of like a fuck you to the New York hardcore scene, because it's just like, and by the way, we're going to throw in a hardcore song, and it's better than most of the stuff that's coming out of New York right now. <laughs> because they weren't popular, and I don't know if there was really any animosity, but I kind of think there might have been, but I could be talking out my ass. Like, I don't, I, you know, I, I never heard of fights or anything like that, but most of the hardcore guys that I knew were like, eh, well, those guys fuck them like you know whatever. i mean i can imagine there not being a big uh response like a positive response from that era yeah you know i mean yeah hardcore yeah. music really. but the misfits could like they i mean and that shows that they put their mind to it and they can do anything it's like and here's our hardcore song thank you M- mic drop yeah like you know i mean earth ad has more you know like yeah. faster tracks on it too, yes. like more faster metal hardcore thrashier kind of stuff on it yeah yeah, but I don't really reach for that record. I mean, I, yeah. I love it, but I don't. It's not my go-to. Oh, you know? this this is the record. This and and Legacy. Yeah, I love Legacy Brutality too. Mm-hmm. You know, American Nightmare is like beautiful song. Yes, yeah, you know? yeah. 
So what's your favorite track? My like? favorite track is Skulls. Oh, see, that's I mean, my favorite track on side two for sure. Yeah, that that's a there, you know, that's a popular song. But that that was the one that was like, you know, I remember playing it on guitar and I was like, Yeah, this is like a cool I tried to do it in like a little my little cover band I had, you know, when I was mm-hmm. a kid. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Yeah, playing Skulls, man. The, the lyrics are cool. They're like the song the song is like has it's like real major guitar thing going on, mm-hmm. and then it's like it has very melodic vocals. Yes, but the lyrics are like hack the heads off little girls and put them <laughs> on my wall. It's like, and that's like exactly you know, like the vibe when I was a kid. I was like into horror. I was into gore and being into creepy stuff like that yeah. too. You know, yeah. and it was like perfect, man. It was like such a great song, and and yeah, to this day, that's a song I just like. I'm always singing it. I'm always playing it. You know, when I pick up my guitar, I'll play those those uh, you know parts of it and stuff, and be like, "Oh yeah, man, you know, Skull is a great song." It's like a sentimental song. It kind of is. Yeah. It's yeah. like a very twisted, dark, sentimental song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's there's something about that era that just you know that there was a lot of emotion in that record, and for all the right reasons but then when you read the lyrics you're like wow this is kind of wild and now i mean i'm saying this now as like you know yeah. a 50 plus year old person like oh okay yeah you know but at the time it was completely relatable oh yeah definitely you know i mean there is that period of time at that age you like wonder if these people actually you know, did hack the heads off little girls you know right I mean? yeah or you know like that was the era when i when, like slayer was around and when they started when i started getting the slayer i was like man are these guys really into satan and like you know anti-christian stuff and whatever yeah. you know and it's yeah. like i mean you know and to, it was just another aspect of the kind of uh you know entity of the band really yeah know? But you never know, really. I mean, in terms of exploring what you're exploring and doing music at the same time, things cross over and, and you don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, that, you know, back a few years later, you know, like things in Norway got a little crazy, they you know, with did. some of those bands. Yeah. Um, another track, you know, the the Mommy Can I Go Out and Kill Tonight track, too. Yeah. You know, the, yeah, definitely um, that's another track that I dig. And what I like about it is is the kind of swing that song has. It does. You know, yeah. because like I said, right right quick when I started listening to Misfits, I picked up on the rockabilly thing, you know, uh-huh. how there was like this very, this reverence for old school, like like rock and roll, like Chuck Berry. Yes. You know, and music that had like a swing to it. Uh-huh. And this song has a swing. Oh, yeah. Like when they're singing, you know, the verse parts of the song. Yeah. And I always thought that was really cool. Like you oh. can like snap your fingers to it. Right. Know? Yeah. Well, and and I think it's Devil's Whorehouse that has that that like walking bass line. Do 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 do. It sounds like the beginning of like Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. Or it's like this kind of like this spy sort of yeah, yeah, theme totally. thing, you know, that really brings out a completely different era. But the lyrics overall are so fifties. Yep. And then when the Mystics were just jerry and whoever they did that project 1950 didn't Mm -hmm. they yep you know and that's clearly how those guys grew up and what they loved but they managed to just shift a few things and create like rock based on that based on horror and and it's really still a very unique sound you know in a weird way and they're they are very different but 
and maybe it's just me because I did get into the cramps around the same time I got into the Misfits, mm. that the bands are not that different, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I know it might be blasphemous for me to say that, but I I like feel like I use the same brain cells to listen to the cramps that I do when I listen to the Misfits. Or there's similar brain cells. I can see that. Yeah, because yeah, the cramps are certainly throwback to what they honor and mm-hmm. how they play, but they play it differently. Yeah. You know, for sure. And, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, and, and um, so, yeah, you know, the, the whole, uh, like, when I was that age, I was really into, like, classic horror, too. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like Frankenstein and, like, the werewolf. And, right. And more, re- you know, more importantly, the teenage werewolf. Okay? Yes, yes. Because me being a teenager, mm-hmm. filled with all this emotion I related to the the character of the werewolf, you know, being right. a teenager. Yeah, changing and going yeah. back and all that, yes. So this, the misfits, drawn into the horror world and then being a teenage werewolf, all that stuff really, like, resonated pretty heavily with me as a, as a young man. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe, like, listening to the misfits while watching I Was a Teenage Werewolf, the sound turned off. right. Might be the ticket for you guys out there. Hmm. If you're like, you know, bored on a Friday night and you want to shake things up a little bit, you should try doing that. Try to listen to this record and watch I Was a Teenage Werewolf with the sound turned off and then get back to me and tell me what kind of experience you had. I think, now if I were to think of it, so for me, I was more like, I loved all the old, the universal you know, monsters. I think my favorite universal monster is the mummy. The mummy's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a, the, and I love the whole archaeology thing. And so for me, there's something in the, and, but, and there's, there's a transformation in the mummy too. Um, so I don't know. Cause that's sort of, the mummy's not quite as, it's a horrific but it's probably not addressed as much. Like the misfits sort of sing a little bit more about monsters. Did yeah, monsters. Like? Yeah. Well, but the mummy's a monster. He's a monster. He's yeah. A, he's a he qualifies as a monster. Actually, you know, all of the classic, you know, universal horror—they all were human at one point, really. I mean, Frankenstein was like Frankenstein's monster was a collection of human body parts. Yes. Yes. Dracula, you know, was a. Uh, thousands of year ancient right. person yes who became a vampire mm-hmm. all right the werewolf yes was a man. yes okay before he got bit by a werewolf right the mummy before whatever arcane powers reanimated him yes. was was a, a an egyptian king yes so yeah so they all were human there's a humanity in all those characters yeah yeah I think that that's probably, I mean, I, I love those movies. They're just, they let you use your own imagination to scare yourself, you know. And there's a lot of current horror things that I do like, but, mm-hmm. but I do like the, the sort of older suspense yeah. horror things too. And, and, and that's, and I think that Misfits definitely like, like they, they touch on, they, they take that. There's a flavor of that in their music. And that's, you know, another reason for me why I, I love it so much because of that. You know, it's like one of the early things that I, I got into and this kind of captured a lot of it. And it was like, yeah, this is all like the most perfect combination of all these things. 
I mean, this record is really, I mean, it's nearly a perfect record. And, and when you, when you're talking about, um, the live version of, of mommy, it's funny. Cause when you really listen to it, it's just cacophonous yeah. at some point. Uh-huh. And, and people who are younger have said to me, I don't even know why they included that on the record. And, I have said to them, well, then you're not listening from the right place. And like, but that's how the Misfits shows were. I mean, most of the songs are not that complex. And no, they're not at all. Yeah. On stage, it was kind of more about being like the superheroes on stage and just doing the show, but it wasn't about being perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, there was something more about like an overall show than like a perfection. I don't really remember anybody like going back and like taking time to tune and I could be completely <laughs> wrong. Yeah, they're, they're, but... not, they're out of tune on some of the recordings. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure they didn't do, even think about doing it live. Right. Yeah. But there was, but that was just the whole being in the moment of, I mean, their shows had momentum and had audience participation. And, and quite often it was, you know, like, like very static on both ends, like kind of like, fuck you, fuck you, you know, like kind of thing. But that's what made it even cooler because there was this interplay that could get antagonistic at any time. Well, there's like that famous story out in San Francisco with the Misfits. And uh, there was like some big fight or some violence at the show or whatever in San Francisco. Is that where it's supposed to be? I think I've I think I've heard the story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's out there. This story, uh, I'll spare everybody. But if yeah. you want to look it up, there's like some San Francisco incident uh, where someone gets hit by mm-hmm. a, an, one of the members of the band, right? Yeah, like a guitar yeah. smashes somebody. That's what I thought. Yeah, and uh, it was like this big. Maximum rock and roll, like controversy, you know, and you know, it's it's out there if you guys yeah. want to read about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you you can't judge. It's just that's just where where it was yeah. at the time. Um, and like we we're saying, I mean, it was just a really crazy time for music, and people were pushing boundaries and seeing what they could do and seeing what they could get away with. And I never saw that when I saw them. I never saw anybody in, in that band strike anybody with their instruments, you know. And the atmosphere was such that maybe it could have happened, you know. So I wouldn't, I mean, I I don't have any information either way on that. But just just that period of time, it was also about going out and supporting whatever was happening in New York at that time too. Um, And then like you touched on the bad brains, I mean, like seeing them live was just insane. Like, cause that's a band that could really play. Oh man. Yeah. And play to like, where you were just like, Oh, like, like Like on a totally different level than any band in that, in that scene at all. Yeah. Like, you know, they were yeah. like, you know, John they, McLaughlin, Mahu, Mahavishnu yeah. Orchestra yes. playing hardcore. Yes. You know? And then they came over and like, and, and HR was doing full flips on the stage. Like while this was happening, it's like as if it wasn't enough to watch these other guys play, you're like, Oh, and you've got an acrobat in the band. 
but every band that was popular or that really ended up somewhere had something. And the Bad Brains clearly had completely different um, aspects than the Misfits, but the Misfits had a package. Like they really had an entire package. And I think that they did know that because Glenn is still successful on his own. Oh yeah. And Jerry remained successful on his own. And then did you go to any of the reunion shows? I wasn't able to go, no. Yeah, no, me neither. No. It's like part of me Yeah, you know, I've never seen I never saw the Misfits. You know, mm-hmm. I was maybe a few years just a little too young to go see them at the time. Um, to travel all the way down from the hinterlands of uh <laughs> you know New York there. But the um I, I felt like if I don't if I didn't see him then then I didn't see him. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. like it's just the way I felt about it. You know, I mean I've seen Danzig many times. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw him the Legacy tour where they did all the Sam Hain and Misfits tracks and all that. And, mm-hmm. and um, but I, I feel like to see them reunited in some big you know arena that they played yeah in, they played like Prudential Center yeah it would have been weird and, yeah you know kind of uncomfortable and I don't know I mean. I I just I probably probably should have went, but I didn't go. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't go. I didn't necessarily have an interest um, because I don't. It wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And they're gonna sell out that show. It's like good for them. And it's know? a lot of money. The tickets, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think so. I think they're they were pricey. Yeah. Yeah. But then when it came down to it, when it came down to the day, it was like everybody I knew was going. Like, people had sort of kept quiet about it, I think because the ticket price was high, and then people were like, well, aren't you going tomorrow? And I was just like, what? What's, and they're like, ah, the Misfits show. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going. And really, I, and I have nothing against, you know, but it's just not time for me to see them anymore. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and it's great that they're doing it. You know, I'm sure they really, really did very well, and mm-hmm. they deserve that. And for them to sort of be able to hash out what there was to hash out in order to do that is some pretty prime negotiating, Yeah, you know, yeah. on an adult level, Definitely. on like a business adult level. Cause there's bands that have been broken up for years where everybody's still alive. And it's like, Oh, there's a million dollars on the table. And people are like, no, you know, it's like, all right, then, you know, I would be willing to have a conversation, but, um, but no good for them. Like really. And I know people who brought their kids to see them. And uh, and I don't know if the... I think that they would be okay on a big stage because Danzig is good at... It, like, Danzig himself yeah. knows how to operate on a large stage. And also the other members, too. I mean, you know, they've been playing... They've been, they've been on the road pretty consistently over the last 20 years or so. Yeah. You know, playing fairly... You know, I guess they have been doing pretty big venues. Yeah. That is true, yeah. 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 You know, because sometimes like when you go to something like Madison Square Garden, or whatever, it's like, you know, the stage is as big as, you know, somebody's property. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow. It's a lot of real estate to cover. Yeah. You know, you're you're playing, you know, you're playing guitar and your bass player is 150 feet away from you. You know, like that kind of thing. That trip, that would trip me out. Like playing on a big stage like that would be. Because, you know, when you see, like, Iron Maiden or something like that, they're, yeah. like, props, and they're, like, they running got ramps. all over the place. Yeah. And ramps. Yeah. You know, and, like, uh, that that might be a little too crazy for me. I there's, think. A certain, there's a certain sensibility you have to have about space to be able to do that. You know who did that really well? 
and I don't know how big it was, but I saw Kylesa open for, oh, I'm not going to remember now. Amoebix, maybe? I think that sounds right. At Bowery Ballroom. Yeah, okay. Um, and that's probably one of the bigger stages that Kylesa played. Yeah. And they really did well. Like, okay, like, and I cool. used to see them in so many tiny little places, right. places where you're like standing on a staircase and uh-huh. they're, you know, playing in a basement where I really got a whole different vibe from them. Like their psychedelic was kind of showing through more and they had lights, like they had like a backdrop of lights kind of showing yeah. and that kind of thing. And, and they really adapted super well to a big stage. Um, and not everybody makes that transition and not everybody needs to, you know, but um, I'm sure the Misfits did figure that out. Maybe if they do it again, maybe I'll go. Well, they have to do yeah. it again. Yeah. You think? I might go. You know. We'll, we'll check. We'll, we will check back with Mike and yeah, see. Yeah, I'll, I'll get if he back goes. to everybody um, when they when they announce the dates. I'll let you guys know if I'm going to go or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as much as I love the Misfits, another band I love that includes Glenn Danzig is Sam Hain, and that's actually. I probably listen to Sam Hain more than I listen to the listen to the Misfits these days. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. It's uh, definitely something that's that's another future thing that we're going to get into. It's probably a Sam Hain record. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, because Glenn took I think his horror and developed it a little bit more into a darker. Yeah. 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 Musical thing which he did very well with and i think his voice is just suited i don't know maybe his voice is just suited well for everything because he just has such a magnificent voice like he really does oh he's and, gr- yeah he's yeah, great yeah. yeah and but somehow yeah i don't know but i can't think of anything that he probably wouldn't do well at and i do think that he's very that he really studies what he's going to sort of work on and perfects it to and it and it just doesn't really come out. You don't hear him like sort of trying something. You don't hear him doing karaoke or anything anywhere. No. Like it's like, no, this comes out and it's just like, wow, perfect, of course. You know. Yeah, there's a very studied especially as his career went on, even with Danzig, you know, mm-hmm. it's like there's a very intentional studied approach to the music, you know. It's yeah. like a very specific way of playing heavy blues rock, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and then my favorite Danzig tracks are the more croony ones, you know what I mean, like mm. Sistinus or something like that. Uh-huh. Like those are the songs that I really like. Yeah. Are, but once again, it has this heavy rock thing going on, but also like a like a duop thing, you know, yeah, or yeah. like a Roy Orbison thing. Right, and it's like very. No one does that, and no one will ever be able to do it the way he does it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And in my opinion, Glenn Danzig, you know, should be, he's like a, an American treasure, really. I mean, I think that as time goes on, he's going to enter the realm of guys like Johnny Cash and like Roy Orbison and all those people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, and, and, and really, like a couple of generations were skipped from that kind of singing um, into the, uh, it's not harmony, but it's just the way that you use your voice as an instrument mm-hmm. that he kind of went into. I mean, I guess you could say a lot of people compare his voice to like Jim Morrison's or that kind of thing, like, cause it's got that sort of mid range timbre a little, but, but yet, yeah, but Danzig has, he's got a sensibility of older music and yeah. he just makes it work. 
Um, and I think it's natural for him. I think it's absolutely natural. And I'm sure he probably grew up listening to the same thing that you're talking about, like yeah. your parents, like for mm-hmm. sure. And I did too. I mean, really like, like my earliest um, memories of music was that music. Cause my, mm-hmm. my parents, they had like 78 record, you know, like the 78s, you know? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, singles and all this stuff. And it was all like old school, like Roy Orbison stuff, like, yeah. you know, the Shirelles, you mm-hmm. know, all that kind of stuff. Is there like Dion? Yeah, Dion. Kinda, yeah. And the Because he's like local, right? So he's kind of like New York. Like I, I, no, and I don't know. I, I, but, but I almost see that there's like a connection in there. Dion, Misfits. Yeah, you totally. Know, Elvis. And I think that's like something that, you know, a lot of people like, like, oh yeah, it's the you know, punk rock, man, you know, but it's like, there's like a deeper connection to regional music really in some ways. Like, you know, you yeah. know, like you think about like a band, like I hate God, who's connected to new Orleans. Yes. You know, all those bands like yes. I hate God, Crowbar, you know, Goat Whore, all those bands have yes. a new Orleans sound. They do. You know? Yeah, they absolutely do. And Danzig misfits. Sam Hain has a tri-state area sound in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like it has like, like we were saying, like, like that connection to that local Dion and the Belmonts, you yeah. know, like, but a more updated version, a more relevant to the time it came out. Yeah. Know? And that's, that's like, so it's a beautiful, interesting thing about the band that some people don't even recognize, I think. Oh yeah. No, not at all. When, uh, I think Jerry was up at FMU and was talking about putting out the project 1950, uh, record, I think that's what it's called, and and I was like, oh, of course, like, and then when it came out, a lot of people were saying like, well, what the hell, blah blah. blah. It's like, really, are you listening? But and, and because the Misfits were under the banner of punk, people sometimes aren't listening. Yeah, they're like categorizing. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is cool, and it's punk. But it didn't just start like like full fledged punk. Anybody who makes music has to come from somewhere. Yes. And that's and that's exactly like how it was processed through them, through their collective brains and through their skill set. And then it came out. And it happened to fall under the punk punk genre. But I think that's only because that's what was new and what was happening. Like, that's what else was happening at the same time. We're trying to get gigs. Oh, these punk bands will play with us, you know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know how much of that there was going on. But it was just, it was new music at the time. So that's, you're at a level and you're looking for shows. In, in a way, like, bands like X, you know, from the West Coast, from California, uh-huh. from yeah. L.A., you know, they had a very strong you know, rockabilly aesthetic or what, oh, what they yeah, were doing. For sure. Very strong connection to classic American music from yes. the, you know the fifties. And um in a lot of ways I felt like the Misfits were like a trashier East Coast version of that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you know, like where where there was like a level of sophistication to X. Mm-hmm. You know, the Misfits were like this down and dirty, like like exploitation film version of, of that <laughs> kind of referencing stuff like East Coast music from that era as yeah. opposed to like the country rockabilly kind of stuff. You right. Know, yeah, X yeah. Was, X was connecting to, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, 
and that then that's another reason why I love them so much is that yeah the songs the songs are r- ragers you know they're the perfect song to put on and get stoked to do things you know it's yeah. awesome and then there's this whole other dimension to it that like you can explore like you can think about you know you can you know expand beyond this record too and listen to you know American Nightmare on on Legacy Brutality you know and that's like oh wow this that's a straight up like rockabilly song that yeah. they did. You know? Yeah. And uh and then that might spark you to explore some other music that they might have influenced them, you know? So there's just this kind of you know, it just kind of connects things back to the past and brings it more current, you know. I don't know, it's interesting. No, it really is. And and this record Forget the Influences is just like the perfect package. And I do just remember like sitting down and being like, okay, I'm going to read all these lyrics now. And I had a really hard time getting through side one because I kept on playing All Hell Breaks Loose. <laughs> like literally over. And I did play it through first only because Vampira had like a really good scream to start with. Because mm. I was just like, what was that song? Oh my God. And then like Vampira started. I'm like, all right, I'll sit here. But then I remember I was just kind of like, uh, and I just played that song over and over and over again. I made a tape. I made, you know, you have your inline cassette. I made a cassette of that song like 10 times in a row so that I could just turn the tape on and hear All Hell Breaks Loose 10 times in a row. Nice. And like do stuff, you know, like (laughs) clean the house. Yeah, because the songs are short, you know, so you need... It's a minute 47 or 46. It's like, but there's so much goodness in that like less than two minute period. You don't need 20 minutes. Like, come on, you know. But uh, yeah, it's like, it's as close to a perfect record in, in so many ways and meanings. And like with like... What's with jamming a live track in the middle of it? Like, it makes no sense from anybody's perspective, but it's great. And oh, yeah, it's totally. just so well, we talked about this already, but it's mm-hmm. just, you know, it it was just really put together well. I would be surprised if you really sat down with some of those guys and they were like, yeah, you know, we figured it out. Yeah, but it's good enough. Like, I don't think so. I think this is like a master plan. Yeah. Well, once again, thanks for coming out here. And, Yay, uh, my pleasure. You know, this is another one of our favorite records. Yes. You know, again. We, and thank you for, for asking about this one, because as soon as you were like, oh, well, let's do maybe like a Misfits or Danzig or Sam, and I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Here yeah. we go. I'm good. And then it got me, because I don't, so like that song, I don't know when it went off my, my radar, but for years it was like my my real like go-to like pump my fist in the air good morning song and then i then i had you know other ones over the years i don't have one right now but anyway um it got me back into it and i was just like yay oh my god i'm glad i could do that yes facilitate that That absolutely yeah it's always good when somebody causes you to like punch your fist in the air (laughs) you got to you got to be able to do that every day you know it's important to remember like you're alive like yes you know, and this record absolutely brought brought life to, you know, to just like wide open, like, oh my God, this is such a great record. So thank you for asking. Yeah, of course. And uh, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll catch you later. Woohoo! <laughs>
That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, the Gimme Radio Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care. sometimes when you um, talk to somebody on the phone do you do Skype yeah I mean on the computer yeah Skype is like uh, I find that to be better quality for a while it wasn't though for a while Skype I thought was terrible yeah yeah a number of years ago it was because I, I had been using Zoom and I did an interview the other day with one of the uh, one of the brew people from the Decibel Fest oh which uh, which which brew uh, Burnt Hickory Okay. They were the ones that had, they had like a uh, Digits beer and a oh. Jesus Lizard beer okay. and a couple. They were upstairs at the top of the steps and they sold out of their beer um, the first day. So they were not there the second day. Um, but I, I had him on my show in 2010 and he had put out a De Kreutzen beer. Oh, and wow. I, and I was just like, who is this guy? And that was kind of before there was a lot of the micros out yeah, there. Yeah. And especially anybody who was doing a, a you know, a... A specialized beer but anyway so i caught up with him i'd never met him like face to face and i was like oh my god are you scott and i was like oh so um and i told him i you know especially for the for the decibel special whenever they end up getting all the permissions and stuff for the for airing all the sets and stuff oh right, right. so i had said to tyler you know I, i'll interview one of the beer people before i even knew that that my friend was there actually and then dave witty was working for somebody too yeah i saw dave so, for a second actually yeah. And uh, actually, you saw them. They were staying in the same hotel, so I hung out with him. And I can't remember the other guy, like the brew guy's name. I think it might have been like Alex or something. But. I'm bummed that I get a chance to really hang with Dave because I don't see him that often these days. Oh, Dave, is, Dave is like work, 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 work. Yeah, he's, he's always 50 busy. 50 million bands. Yeah. Know? So I'm looking forward to, to seeing him for, for five minutes, you know, untethered to his own set. Yeah. Thanks for coming out here, Diane. Out here, uh,